The global COVID-19 lockdown is transforming the way we behave and how consumers engage with the world. Many businesses across the corporate spectrum are scrambling to reinvent themselves, not just to stay afloat in the short term, but to justify their existence in the post-pandemic world. In this series, we'll try to understand how different parts of the economy are being affected by the coronavirus and how companies are having to adapt. One sector that has had to adapt faster than any other is retail. Shops are shut and companies have had to either expand their delivery businesses or rapidly develop one. It's affected not just the retailers, but their suppliers and even their landlords. As shops are forced online, perhaps permanently, landlords are finding themselves in a race to keep up. With me on the line today, I have a multi-talented panel of experts, starting with Adrian Benedict, Head of Real Estate Solutions. Um, Adrian, you've described real estate as the canary in the coal mine for retail. Give me one statistic that tells me the story. The, the real number that I want people to actually reflect on is uh, rent recovery rates. We normally expect recovery rates to be at the levels of 19 95%. So it's a number that you very rarely hear about because it's as close to ideal as you can get. But actually those numbers were down as low as 20 to 25% um, in certain sectors, particularly in that retail space. It's just giving you a premonition of actually just how badly the lockdown is affecting some of these businesses. So only 25% of rents are being paid in, in, in that sector? Yeah, at that point in time, they have recovered subsequently. But what this is really highlighting is actually just how little room for manoeuvre some of these businesses have got. Welcome, Adrian. Now, with Adrian from the Fixed Income team, we're joined by senior credit analyst Rebecca Clements. Rebecca, what's the number that encapsulates the state of things for you at the moment? Actually, I think following on from the first comment, um, I could use the example that's the more outrageous one of 97% is the decline in footfall in April in uh, US traffic. However, I think as we're starting to talk about coming out of lockdown, the, the number that kind of sticks out to me is um, a large department store retailer this last week has said that when they initially reopen, they expect sales to only be about 15 to 20% of what they were before. And I think that's quite indicative of concerns around longer term recoveries, um, because I think it will take longer coming out of this than perhaps people initially thought. Recovery, what recovery indeed. OK, well, finally, we have equity, uh, retail equity research analyst Sehat Bibilen. Sehat, what would be your one figure that gives a sense of the pace of change, perhaps, um, that's taking place at the retailers that you cover? I think the most interesting example comes from the food retailers. UK has the highest food retail online penetration in the whole world which is around 8 9%. It took all these retailers 25 years to reach that 8 9%, and that number doubled in the last 4 weeks. I think this is this is a great example showing the pace of change uh, in the in the online online and offline uh, sphere. A revolution if you like. Well, thank you all very much indeed for joining me today. Thank, thank you very you. much. Adrian, you might not have realized when COVID-19 started hitting the headlines months ago now that you'd find yourself at the very epicenter of a crisis about a virus. Tell me a little bit more about the severity of what's happening. Sure. Um, as you say, Richard, you know, normally real estate's one of the last sectors to really see the impact of some of these things. Uh, but actually, we seem to be at the forefront. And as I mentioned, you know, those recovery rates were what really actually just shook us almost to the core. Because when you think about it, real estate is expected to be a relatively predictable asset class, nothing 
too often happens to it, and hence why you, you get a, a lot of capital parking their money there as almost that being that diversifier. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves within days of the shutdown having a multitude of occupiers saying, well, we're in effect almost like, you know, like us as uh, individuals, we're looking almost at our bank statement and saying, right, we don't know what in the way of income we're going to be coming through our bank account. But what we do know is there's a whole bunch of liabilities. And one of the largest parts of that is rent. And so we're expecting some of that to come through on the rent on the retail side. But actually, you know, that's absolutely where the worst of the crisis has uh, certainly come through in terms of recovery rates. But interestingly as well, it's actually on the logistics side as well. So I think for me, it's not just simply where we were expecting some distress and some uh, pain, but actually it's a lot more nuanced. It's much more about those businesses who don't have that much in the way of flexibility to actually weather a storm and are weathering a storm which is measured again not in days or weeks, but potentially months and quarters. So a range of sectors that are affected, and you say they haven't got much room to uh, to manoeuvre. So how are the landlords um, responding? Are they offering payment holidays? Are there are there any changes to contracts? So absolutely, I think from our perspective, I should point out a landlord. You know, we do have obligations and responsibilities, and our first and foremost one is to make sure that we're providing space that you know uh, our occupiers can use in a safe and sensible manner. And that was really the first priority to create safe space and that was immediately just before the lockdown but then even afterwards now the 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 shift of attention has very much been a case of right how can we support those occupiers the last thing we want to have is occupiers um, facing administration or liquidation nobody wants to see that but equally we do not have incredibly deep pockets um, to be able to do that so what we've done in effect is actually saying right you know, for certain types of occupiers who ask for more favourable terms, we can either move from quarterly to monthly uh, payments, or indeed there's a potential for deferring those rents, and those can be anywhere from a month to six-month deferrals. But in a handful of select cases, that could actually even be uh, uh, rent holidays, where the the occupier simply isn't being pay isn't paying any kind of rent. Now. That generally is for the most desperate cases at this current juncture. And you know, when we look at our own portfolios that we manage, by and large, the anecdotal evidence is actually that's really for the smaller businesses. So those which have typically got less than 10 or 15 employees who clearly don't have the significant balance sheets that other corporates might have. So that's really what we're seeing across uh, the board. But I think there's also uh, something which we might touch on later, which is about actually the geographical vari- variation because it's significant. You know, We talk about this being a global pandemic, but it's affecting different geographies in very different ways. Okay, we we will come to that later on. I just want to um, uh, follow on one of the points that you made there, because you talk about rent deferrals, perhaps a polite way of um, putting it. Rebecca, you look at the creditworthiness of the the businesses um, who who are the who are paying those rents or or not. Um, what does it mean for their reputation um, in fixed income markets if they do have to come up with some sort of arrangement like this on um, on their rents? I think during normal times, this would be obviously a huge, a huge red flag. Uh, it would be a real problem, but you would only see it in cases where, you know, companies are are trying to avoid administration. So in the UK, you would have somebody taking a CVA type of arrangement, which is a voluntary arrangement, which haircuts, uh, rents, etc. Or in the US, Chapter 11 is frequently one of the reasons companies 
go for Chapter 11 is to cut their rents. However, I, I actually don't think that there's really very much reputational risk at all right now, particularly for operators that have very little online and are, are essentially bricks and mortar and have been forced to lock down. If there's no rent revenue coming in because you can't be open, uh, clearly there's no way that you can pay your rents. And I think that landlords also very much appreciate that. So depending on the jurisdiction, you might see more rent holidays than you would expect. Uh, deferrals are obviously part of it. But I think also there'll be a work in process in terms of how quickly stores can come out of this. And that will affect how quickly they can actually address the the deferrals and the back pay that they would owe in the first place. So if it's um, almost the norm at the moment, because we're in such a remarkable situation, does that mean that things like the rating agencies, that they are under pressure or they might be uh, putting themselves in a position where they don't down grade companies um, because of um, the situation and also the, the domino effect that it might have. Yeah, I think the rating agencies have been more or less active. Uh, it, it does vary by jurisdiction as well. The bigger issue, I think the biggest issue for most of my coverage, which is global actually, is liquidity. Can you survive? You know, it's tomorrow's concern if you uh, didn't pay rent this month and, you know, you need you owe them money. Worry about that if you can survive to the next month. So I do think that there are, in my view, three phases here. And the initial phase is, can you afford to just stay alive during lockdown with given the cash burn you have? Um, and many CFOs have said everything is a variable cost now, whereas previously that's not how you looked at the business. Uh, which is why they're not paying rents. But I think coming out of the lockdown, you've got the issue of very low sales, uh, big hits to gross margin on promotions. And also, do you actually have the cash available to replenish your inventory and bring in fresh inventory? And then the third phase is, do you have enough liquidity to make it through a possible second wave situation? So this is really coming down to liquidity. And even you know companies that are investment grade, A-rated companies, if you're your stores are not allowed to be open, you're zero revenue. You're not seeing the agencies downgrading just because of that. But I think that we will see a lot more action coming out of this in the next six to 12 months. And Sehat, the, the business models of a lot of these companies are being challenged because of uh, the big changes, as we described, in, in, in consumption habits. Um, and most obviously, people are indoors, that uh, they're not going out, they're doing all their shopping online. Um, describe what you're seeing in the, in the companies that you follow. So in the last couple of years, actually, in the last decade, everyone was saying that omnichannel was the right, right way of doing, doing business business because there was shift to online and then at the same time they thought all the retailers and all the investors thought there was a purpose for the brick and mortar stores or retailers but what we realized in the last couple of weeks actually if people don't go to stores that omni-channel model doesn't work at all because it's heavily dependent on your store network a good example is one of the biggest uh, apparel retailers in the uk so 80 percent of the products they, the customers return are going through their stores. If we close the stores, the basket economics is heavily disrupted and something, a profitable business model, suddenly becomes an unprofitable business model. And the same thing actually ha- is happening on the, the food retailer side. So historically, everyone thought UK has the highest online penetration and it was reaching maturity. There was no further room for growth in online. But as I highlighted in the initial question, online penetration doubled even in the food retail. Some people think that this is going to, like, all these trends are going to reverse after the lockdown. But my sense is that the longer the lockdown lasts, the stickier these habits are going to be. And what are some of the less obvious changes that, um, that you might be spotting as well? 
initial phase after the lockdown was that the customers or the consumers were trying to adjust their lifestyles, right? They were basically nesting. Uh, they were buying all the food, stockpiling food. They were buying monitors for working from home and iPads for homeschooling their kids. All this kind of uh, amenities you need to survive in your house. But after that, now the second phase is actually the acclimation phase. So they realize that this might last longer than actually a couple of weeks. And they are trying to stay healthy. And a good example is actually is actually Google Trend analysis on all these retailers. When you look at what they are trying, it's amazing. Like people who never done or who has never done yoga or Pilates, they are trying it now. They are joining online gym classes and they are buying mountain bikes. It's unbelievable the pace of change. So these 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 are not quite visible because people see empty shelves in the supermarkets. But at the same time, actually the consumers are trying are trying to be healthy and they they want to stay healthy. And this might have long term implications on how they basically live in their in their, in their daily lives. One thing I would say from the fixed income side uh, that I've seen is there is a an acceleration that companies are seeing real time how customers are behaving. So while online penetration is definitely increasing, I think depending on the market, uh, you are also seeing more people looking to do pickups. So they might order online, but they're happy to go to the store and pick up, especially if it's located in an area where the supermarket is as well, and they do it all in one trip. And we've had some retailers who've realized that actually, in some cases, their stores are doing better during lockdown because they're they're having higher sales fulfilling out of stores for pickup and contactless than they were even before with regular uh, traffic flow with customers. So that sounds that sounds remarkable. Just just to understand that, sorry. So this, these are retailers um, who, contrary to expectations, are doing better um, than in the uh, than before the crisis when when shops were free and easy to, to wander in and out of. They're actually doing better when clients are or the customers are ordering online and then walking or driving to the to the store to pick it up from there. I think it's location specific. So I don't I wouldn't say that this particular retailer is doing better overall, but I. Think think that individual locations, they're learning a lot about their store network and they're learning about coming out of this, how they can better leverage the existing network and perhaps, you know, locations where it, they accelerate the closures. So I think you're going to see a combination of both of those things. And for retailers that have maybe been a little bit back foot about omni-channel or online and e-com, you know, ease of use and ordering... I think you're going to see a lot more of the the capex spend go that way, and a lot less of it going, in many cases, to a lot of different stores, and more to just a, a smaller selected number of locations. And what about the logistics for all of this? Um, I just wanted to come back to Serhat to to ask about uh, you, you need somewhere to to store all these goods that are being um, uh, delivered online. Um, how, how is that changing? That the um, uh, the sheds that um, that all this is is put in. So I think we need to understand first why the consumers are buying all these things. So as I highlighted, it is it is for nesting purposes. It is for preparing for the lockdown, longer lockdown, rather than they are buying these things on a discretionary basis. So this means that you can't extrapolate the current trends further along the way. And most of these retailers are aware of the situation, but the biggest issue they face in terms of the capacity is that is, is Christmas planning. Christmas is the biggest period for most of these retailers. And if because of the social distancing, their capacities, online capacities are halved right now. You can't have as many employees as you used to have in these in these big warehouses because 
they can't get close to each other. And even in the most automated warehouses, this is a big issue. We had a call with one of these biggest retailers a couple of weeks ago, actually, and they mentioned that even the toilets are a bottleneck in their warehouses in terms of providing the capacity. And nobody thought about this, but it's, it's a completely different setup. And right now, the, the demand is okay, but it's not going to continue as, at these levels forever. And hence, they are being cautious on adding capacity. But at some point, if you realize that this virus is not going to go away, they will have to add online capacity because things are going to move to online for good if, 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 if the current environment or if the current uh, situation continues. So online capacity, but with enough bathrooms as well. Developers, please make note. Uh, now, Adrian, did you want to come in on uh, on one of those points? Yeah, I, I think I just echo actually sort of like some of what uh, Rebecca and Serha have been saying in terms of what we're already experiencing um, from the landlord perspective. You know, So when we've been looking at, uh, particularly in the retail space, DIY retailers, for example, in Germany, actually it's one of the areas where uh, the government through its lockdown restrictions and actually that's one area that they can remain open and as a result footfall we didn't need uh, see anywhere near as dramatic the falls that we saw elsewhere so uh, Rebecca was talking about 90 odd percent in DIY stores were seeing around about a 40 percent footfall so it was you know it was melding as well some of the comments that Serhat was referencing which is great I've got my food now what I can eat but is that really what all I'm going to be doing? You know, I do want to actually do a bit more than that in my household. You know, it might be a case of getting some nice plants, getting a bit of furniture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think as well, what we also need to start thinking about is it's not going to be one binary switch from lockdown to normal. You know, and I think the market, I don't think, quite anticipates actually what that interim phase might look like but then equally how long it might last for so in the retail space i think is the most acutely affected because they have very little margin for maneuver so can you imagine an equities analyst hearing that you know sales numbers were going to be down five percent not 95 percent and they'd be saying margin gone dividends gone etc etc but that's the environment that they found themselves in today but even the improvement might be a 50 percent growth but it's still a 40 50 percent off where their normal trading levels were so i just want that, that actually brings us to the uh, to the nub of all of this which is um whether even with a recovery as we come back to um, a form of, um, of normality, uh, whether these companies are viable. So, Adrian, what are the conversations that the landlords are having with, um, with companies? I mean, presumably there's forbearance, there's, um, there's some tolerance that in these exceptional times, you know, if there's no income, obviously a company isn't going to be able to pay its um, rent now. But you need to have a viable business at the end of all of this. So how do you make that sort of judgment? Well, I think that's the biggest challenge, particularly for... Uh real estate investors and particularly specifically those landlords you know the equity investors in the past we just used to focus on location 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 and quite frankly then the occupiers would come so think about all those shopping centers those you know those large office in you know central locations but i think now um, over the last few years we've certainly seen it in the retail space actually it's about the affordability of that space and the functionality of that space is really going to determine whether you're going to have meaningful demand and in in turn the right quality of businesses standing in place of those backing up those leases and i think for me that's what the real estate investment market needs to 
grapple with very, very quickly. Swap the old adage, and actually the new adage needs to be income, income, and then location. It's really understanding the businesses that Serhat and Rebecca are covering and saying, well, actually, what is the sustainability of that income stream? And is that something I want to have exposure to through a lease or not? And in a changed world, Rebecca and Sohat, this is a very difficult um, task for you to be doing, to be trying to work out which are the businesses that, um, that are going to succeed. I mean, I suppose one thing you need to understand is whether these changes in behaviour, um, uh, Sohat, you, you've touched on this already, is how sticky they are, how much, uh, how permanent um, the adaptations are that, um, that consumers are taking. So I think a good example is, again, the food retails online penetration. So what is the total addressable market for the food retail? I mean, people don't really know this, but actually the people who have recently had a baby are the main growth market or the growth category for the online food retailers. And historically, they've been pushing them to turn online from offline or brick and mortar when they have a, ba- when they have a baby, basically. It's, it's kind of the, the rule of thumb for the online food retail. And the young people and old people, they really don't like online. And there are some reasons for that. For the young people, average basket sizes are one fourth of, of, of an Okada basket. Okada is one of the online food retailers, pure plain online food retailers. And it's the biggest one in, in the UK, actually. So average basket size is around 110 pounds. If you think about an individual household, like weekly basket size is around 20, 30 pounds. And it's impossible for that person to join online or to go online. And the same thing applies to elderly people. To go to a supermarket or going to a supermarket is a social interaction for them. There's a different mission. It's not buying food or it's not buying groceries. It's meeting people, talking to people. They suddenly give up on that, and which is, which is quite unlikely. After the lockdowns end or if after the virus is gone, they will gradually go back to their old habits. But I believe some of these young people who started ordering food with their housemates or with their friends who live close by will continue this trend. So it's really hard how sticky it will be. But as I highlighted before, the longer it lasts, the more sticky it will be, actually. And Rebecca, coming to you, you know, we've heard about the the death of the high street. Are we now at the point where we're going to see a divide between a few that will survive, a few types of retailers that will survive and um, the others that will just melt away? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as high street. I think we were already at that point before uh, the pandemic of there will be a handful of winners and everyone else is going to disappear over time. Um, but I think that not, not, to, not to live so much in the present, because I appreciate that, that what is the situation today isn't necessarily going to be the situation in a year. But I think that even investment grade companies or previously investment grade rated companies with you know, pretty solid balance sheets, are, they're adding billions of debt to fund their liquidity shortfall. And if even an investment previously investment grade retailer can't survive through this, clearly, if you've had a stressed balance sheet, you're going to struggle even more. But I would also say that some of the investment grade retailers probably were, I don't want to say complacent, but they don't have the same cash flow awareness that a more leveraged retailer has. So one of the things you see in, in the high yield space is a lot more focus on cash flow. They're, they're much more focused on cost because they have to be. And they're familiar with dealing with with tighter liquidity, whereas the investment grade, you know, especially higher rated investment grade retailers, their treasury departments have never had to deal with this before. So I think there's a little bit of a guessing game, not only because we don't know what the future holds, but also 
they may not actually have the best idea of how much cash they really need in this kind of environment because they've never been here before. And and one thing I would highlight, the investment grade new issuance market in March and April was five to six times the size. It was $250 billion of what it normally would have been. And certainly in the U.S., uh, with the Fed programs coming through this month, they're talking about it being up to eight times what it normally is. So there is a lot of debt being issued. And a lot of that cash will be burned, obviously not just by retailers. But uh, I think going forward, your balance sheet is going to be uh, a much different situation. And you can't count on previously investment grade retailers necessarily staying investment grade. Adrian, what changes do you see in the long term as you as you look at uh, from from your vantage point in, in real estate? But when you look at retail, when you look at um, logistics and perhaps other sectors as well that you think will be um, permanently affected by this? Sure, I think um, you know, in the retail space, I think it's been pretty well documented. So like what our views are, which is that was very much the uh, canary in the coal mine. Um, they've been having, quite frankly, an onslaught. Uh, of issues being thrown at them those that survive are the ones who learnt what survival looked like and how fundamentally they need to reshape their businesses Um, but moving away from that I think in the logistics space um, there seems to have been a degree of complacency amongst investors saying well obviously everyone's going online so everything's going to be okay everyone's going to need storage space everyone's going to need more delivery and that's how it's all going to be working but then when you heard Sirhat talking about like what online penetration rates were like for, for example, food groceries, it's 8%. I've tried to get a slot on pretty much every single online platform, and I can't. So I'm going to the shops, and I'm realising, you know what? Things are going to have to change quite a lot if I can actually reliably uh, rely on online retailing. So what that means is actually logistics setup needs to change fundamentally you know that notion of just-in-time logistics i think is going to be fundamentally different so if uh, retailers or indeed other businesses are going to build in slack which is inevitably what they're going to have to do it's going to be very much around that storage and their logistics chain so there will be absolute winners and losers in that space and i think it's understanding what those types of winners are are likely to be you know business to consumer is doing very well but business to business if the business has been shut down they don't need any supplies they don't need any of that kind of stuff is the first thing second thing is actually um in times of crisis we've found actually if you know a large proportion of the world's product is coming from one specific part of the globe and supply lines are predominantly through shipping you've got huge concentration issues and so what we've been finding as well is those operations who are dependent upon a substantial part of their product coming through ships have not got anything to sell so you might be open but you don't have anything to sell because you literally don't have the product you can't grab hold of it and actually it's those businesses then as a result who were um, had their logistics chain principally around airports or other or you know more diversified I should say but particularly around airport locations they've seen just frenzied boom you know because there was one time actually there was impossible to get any new slots on air freight delivery coming out of the major airports of China it was just shut down and there were a handful of flights but what did you need then storage 
because you needed to be able to deliver your product to the back of the plane within hours because that's what the slot was given. So we saw an acceleration in that. So I think it's very much about these kind of quite nuanced responses and how businesses have been able to then um, shift into that. And really what that promotes is you know, management teams who have got much more of a clear vision about what disruption really looks like. You can never predict what that disruption might be, what the nature of it you can and how your business then, how quickly it can respond to that and how diversified it might be to then conduct those kind of different, those changes. Serhat, are you getting a sense in the conversations you're having with um, with management teams of the ones that are, that, that do get it, um, as you know, that the picture that Adrian's painting there, uh, that do understand how big the disruption is going to be and how quickly they've got to adapt? I mean, I understand there's a lot of negative angles, but at the same time, there are some positive positive points about this disruption as well. Because if you think about the UK retail versus other retail markets, on the non-food side as well, we have the highest penetration, around 30-35% penetration on the non-food retail side. Excluding Asia, in the Western world, this is the highest penetration. So the, the this disruption or the bulk of the disruption has already happened in this country. The, the key question is we don't know if it will be 70% or 80%. But in the last five years, because of this disruption and on top, Brexit, actually bulk of the capacity came out. So there's not many retailers left on the high street. I mean, think about sports retail, for example, in the UK. So we have two big brands, JD Sports and Sports Direct. Or think about electronics. Other than John Lewis and Dixon's Carphone or Curry stores, there's no, no other retailers, big chain retailers. So the disruption has already happened. And, and I, I personally believe in the UK especially, it will be less than any other, any other country in the world. And, and one more thing, which is related to real estate people miss, it's not only about traffic, it's also about conversion, right? So if you think about a typical high street retailer before COVID-19, the conversion rate was around 25 to 30%. So basically, 100 people go to your store, only 25 people buy something. So even if the traffic comes down to 50% versus pre-COVID levels, if the conversion goes up, you might still survive whatever disruption is ahead. So I'm quite cautious on, on being too negative because especially I would like to think UK is going to decouple from other markets considering the, the fundamentals in the country. But most, most retailers I talk to, they are aware of the situation. But at the same time, they talk about the capacity, like some more, a little bit more capacity which will come out and help them after 12 months, disruption in the, after the, the disruption in the next 12 months, basically. So the disruption has already happened. Um, what an interesting point to highlight. That's a very UK-specific um, idea, though. Rebecca, how does that compare with the rest of the world? Well, I think I, I certainly don't disagree. Uh, you know, outside Asia, um, the online penetration is definitely lower in other markets. But I think there's behavioral aspects to how people shop as well. If you're in a city, obviously, click and collect and delivery make a lot of sense. Uh, you can just walk there, pick something up or have it delivered. But I think if you're in a much less dense populated area, people are very used to taking their cars and doing big shops. And if it's convenient for them, um, you know, it's it's if you're already going to, you know, a large food retailer to buy buy your your weekly shop and you live in a more rural or suburban area, it's it's no big deal to stop and pick something up uh, from a, whether it's actually going in the store or actually just picking up something you'd pre-ordered, 
um, in the same shopping center. That's that's one trip that's easy. It also saves those retailers the the last mile, or in rural areas, the many many last miles of cost. So, I think it will depend a bit on the jurisdiction, but inevitably, I think online penetration goes up. I think the other thing that will be interesting to watch is, given there's a fairly negative outlook here for consumers and consumer spending. Uh, you would expect to see people trading down to you know the more value end and away from the middle, which the middle has been getting squeezed for a long time now. But I think it'll be interesting to see players that have succeeded very well without having an online presence um, and have a more value position. They should benefit from a downturn. However, will, will consumers be reluctant to shop? Will they be reluctant to try things on? Um, will they prefer to order online? And so I think behaviorally, there's, there's a lot of uh, uncertainties there about who the winners will be, depending on how consumers' behavior either changes or whether it goes back to what it was before. That's a very good point, Rebecca. Actually, when I talk to discounter food retailers in the UK, what we see is it's the first time they start to lose market share because they don't offer online. And at the same time, people are more, more, more price inelastic. And the missions have changed completely. They just want to do one big weekly shop rather than topping up on, on, on a daily basis. And hence, actually, it's the first time ever the discounters in the food retail in the UK are having challenges. And this is really interesting because considering most people expect a very grim outlook for, for, for the consumer, uh, consumer sector, this might actually change the dynamics significantly. So the picture is changing radically, food, non-food, UK, internationally. Um, Adrian, bearing uh, in mind what you already know and what you've, you've heard in this conversation today, how do you think investors should be rethinking um, real estate in particular for, um, for retail and for, uh, for logistics? Um, I think, you know, coming back to a couple of comments I mentioned before, it's, you know, they hold real estate principally for that sustainability and predictability of income. And what we've had over the last decade is a number of highly disruptive events really challenging, actually, how predictable your rental stream might be. Retail has absolutely been at the forefront of it, and I think certain other segments are. And so really, it's actually investors thinking, well, actually, how adaptable can your portfolio be to face just uncertainty? You know, so if we think back to uh, how some investors were playing the office market, they're saying, well, actually, what we need to do is make more flexible terms. Let's all back WeWork uh, and names like that. And actually what it's highlighted is flexibility is a double-edged sword. It's not just something that you can utilise. It's actually your occupier can at the same time. And so actually what we'd probably need to be moving more toward is where your space can be much more functional. And it's really trying to understand what your occupiers need as a core part of their offering. You know, so it was right to hold a very sizable exposure to retail when the retailer was the fastest growing segment in the marketplace. It was all about consumption driven economies. You wanted to get that uh, outperformance, hold a high level of retail. But the question is, why were landlords holding retail when you saw a fundamental change in how retailers' profitability was. That's the mismatch which I still do not understand um, because the writing was, quite frankly, on the wall for quite some time. So playing that through to the, to, to, you know, the future, I think that's where I've got similar uh, thoughts around logistics part of the market. I think 
logistics um, companies, those who've thrived during this crisis, are the ones who basically were able to deliver capacity to their um, clients. There are a number of logistics chains who struggled. Those are the businesses that you need to back, for example, when you're looking at developing or uh, a logistics portfolio. It comes back to the names. You know, there are going to be companies that are going to thrive in different types of scenarios and those that aren't. And that's where I think real estate really needs to almost you know, put to one side the notion about sector and geography being a major determinant of future performance. It's actually about the quality, the sustainability of that income stream. And to understand that, you really need to understand the business models of your occupiers. That, for me, is the most fundamental change. And Rebecca, what's the single thing that you'll be watching in the coming months to, to, to help identify the winners and losers, as, uh, as Adrian describes? It's all about liquidity. <laughs> you, you may not be the best operator, but if you've got liquidity and your, your competition uh, doesn't have liquidity, I think you're going to be the survivor. Um, so... Balance sheet is important. Access to capital markets uh, is important. And, um, you know, how willing are our bond investors and also how willing were landlords and uh, other suppliers? How amenable were they to helping you survive as well? And Sehat, final word to you. What are you looking for? I think on top of what Rebecca just mentioned, for me, the most important thing is how adaptive their strategies are. And I see some great examples, actually. Some retailers are adapting to current environment quite fast. And that's the, the single most important criteria for me because the uncertainty ahead is quite big. And if I can be sure that, that that management team or that company will adapt to whatever comes ahead, I feel more certain about, about that, that business model. Fantastic. We've covered so much ground there and being able to hear um, your different interpretations coming at it from a, a real estate investment point of view, from equities and from, from credit research as well. So um, thank you very much indeed, because that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you to my guests, Adrian Benedict, Rebecca Clements and Serhat Bebilen. You can hear more from Fidelity's investment team on the COVID-19 crisis, the market response and investment implications on both our rich pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast channels. Just search for those titles in your podcast app. And you can also read all of the latest thinking online at fidelityinstitutional.com. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with production support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. From all of us at Fidelity though, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.